Y'all comfortable? Temperature in here is all right? Yeah? Okay. Just me. I got an extra shirt on this morning. It's a little hot. I don't know what I'm going to do tonight. Uh, for the past several weeks, I have been enjoying and soaking in the last dance. Which, of course, if you follow basketball or sports at all, you know is the documentary that detailed the Chicago Bulls dynasty of the 90s, along with Michael Jordan. The documentary was really nostalgic for me. Uh, at one point, they uh, played an ad that I remember from my early childhood. Perhaps you'll, you'll recognize the jingle a little bit, right? It's like, Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream to move. I dream I groove like Mike. Da -dum -dum. If I could be like Mike. It repeats, and at the end of the ad, the screen goes black, and it says, Be like Mike. Drink Gatorade. I thought, I have to get myself some Gatorade. I want to be like Mike. What has that to do uh, with Leviticus chapters 18 and 20? Well, well, let me tell you, the main idea of these notorious chapters, 18 and 20, kind of complement one another, as you will see. The main idea is to be holy as God is holy. If we wanted to make it like the Jordan commercial, we could say, be like God. Walk in his commandments. I've said it a little cleaner in our main idea, God's people must not follow the ways of the world, but rather delight in the law of the Lord their God. An exhortation is to reject worldliness and to keep God's commandments. Our outline provides three reasons for doing this, three reasons that we want to be like God and keep his commandments. One is because God redeems and rules his people. Two is that God sets his people apart as his own. That's what it means to be holy, is to be set apart. And three, God does not tolerate sin among his people. We'll work through that this morning together. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we ask that you would help us to not walk in the way of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but that you would make our delight in your law because it is good. We pray that you would make us like well-rooted trees with roots that go down into the living waters that come from Christ. We pray that you would help us to delight in you, to delight in your word, and to desire to love our neighbors and to display your glory and your goodness to a lost and dying world so they might see who you are, repent of their sins, and trust in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our prayer. That's our hope. We pray that you would magnify the Lord in us this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 18. The Lord spoke to Moses 
Speak to the Israelites and tell them, I am the Lord your God. Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live, or follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You must not follow their customs. You are to practice my ordinances, and you are to keep my statutes by following them. I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and ordinances and live. A person will live if he does them. I am the Lord. And so you can see what, what God is saying. He's saying, you are going into the promised land, and so you can't be like the people of Egypt where you used to live, and you can't be like the people of Canaan, the land to where you're going. No, no, you have to reject their customs, and you have to be like me. Not the surrounding nations, not the false gods, like me, the one true God. And he says, my way is the best way to live. If you follow my rules, you will be blessed. That's what's going on in verse 5, right? He's not telling them, hey, if you do these things, then you'll be saved. It's obvious he's already saved them. He's already brought them out of Egypt. He's already made them his people. He's saying, do these things in obedience to me, and life is going to go well with you. You'll notice that refrain, I am am the Lord your God, over and over again in these first five verses and throughout the chapter. And, and that, that phrase would have conjured up in the minds of the Israelites truths about God. Right? Times when they had heard him say, I am the Lord your God. I have redeemed you. I am the Lord your God. I have set you apart. I am the Lord your God who dwells among you. All, all of these things are embedded in that phrase. And what God is doing is he is grounding the instruction that he is about to give them in who he is and what he's done. And so God is saying, you need to do what I'm telling you to do. You need to keep my rules because, and listen, this reason is, is really brilliant, because I'm God. Right? Doesn't, doesn't it feel like he needs to go any further than that? No other reason is needed. There's no further explanation. This is reason enough. God is God, and therefore his people should listen to him and keep his rules. All of his creation should keep his rules and obey his law. But in Israel's case, it goes deeper than that. They've also been redeemed by him. So not only is he their creator, he's their redeemer. They should listen to the rules of the Lord their God. And Christian, your situation is the same. You should listen to the rules of the Lord your God. You should obey his word because he is your creator and your redeemer. You are doubly owned. Right? We, we read that at the end of 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You have been purchased at a price of the blood of Christ. And therefore, you are to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And God defines what righteousness is. And so we, we want to keep his rules. And that's, they're not burdensome. It's not a trouble for us to do that. 
When the Holy Spirit comes and gives you the eyes of faith, you, you see God, you see his law, and you fall in love with it. You're able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, making the eyes radiant. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And listen to this. This is verse 10 of Psalm 19. And this is what the psalmist says about God's word. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Does that describe your relationship with the word and the rules of God? It should. It should because God's law is good. God's rules are good. Understand there are good rules, right? You know, brush your teeth, take a shower exercise. There are good rules here. There are benefits to keeping these rules, and there are costs if you don't, right? You don't cost, well, you end up the stinky kid. Uh, uh, you, don't, you don't shower, you end up the stinky kid. Uh, you don't brush your teeth, your teeth get messed up. In my house, one of the rules is don't walk through mommy's dirt piles when she's sweeping, or you might pay with your life, right? It's a good rule. Or you can even think of a, of a car, Right? When you're a kid, you don't just hop at five years old up into the car and drive out down the driveway. I mean, maybe you do, but it's not going to go well typically. There, there are rules. You have to you know, go to like uh, driver's ed, or you have to get your license, and then you have to obey the rules of the road. And the rules are not there to you know, strangle your joy. They're there to help cultivate your joy so that you can drive safely and enjoy the car and the road. Likewise, God's rules, God's laws are good for us. They're to be embraced and obeyed happily, not to be be rejected or scoffed at. And that's the case when it comes to rules like those which are laid out before us in Leviticus 18 and 20. And that's the case with rules about family, which is the big category that we could put over all of this, but there are going to be kind of two smaller subcategories under family that are being discussed in chapter 18. And they are sexual behavior and worship. There are going to be the you shall nots in two kind of categories. You, you shall not follow these sexual behaviors of the pagan nations, and you shall not worship in these idolatrous ways like the pagan nations. And all of this relates to the family. But I fear that sometimes we as Christians, for whatever reason, are like embarrassed about God's rules, especially as it relates to sexuality. We almost want to apologize for them. Like, hey, I'm sorry, I, I understand that, that you're in sexual immorality, that you want to live with your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend and, and, and have sex before you're married, but... You know, and I get that, it's great, but, but the Bible just, I'm sorry, it, does, it says that, that that's not holy. I'm not suggesting that you should be a jerk to people who are caught in sin, or to other Christians who are caught in this kind of sin. But I am saying that this posture of being 
embarrassed by God's word is wrong. We understand God's word to be good. Not just for us, but for everybody. That God's word leads to human flourishing. And that disobedience to his word ultimately brings harm both to individuals and to the society at large. Brings harm to the family when we don't obey God's rules. I think we only get embarrassed about the scriptures when we start wanting to impress the world or befriend the world rather than love the world. Let the listener understand. James tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Are you embarrassed by the word of God? Let us not be embarrassed. I love what 1 John chapter 5, the first few verses there say to us about God's law. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God. This is what tells us that we love God and love his people. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. You want to love God back? You want to show God that you love him? This is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And then I, I love this. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not a burden. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The, the people of God love the word of God and delight to keep the word of God. They love God by obeying his commandments. Love for God is expressed in obedience to his word. Love for our neighbor comes when we obey God's word. God's people are to honor their Redeemer by reflecting their Redeemer's character in their lives. God's people are to be distinct from the world. And God wants to outline specifically what that looks like. He says, don't be like the Canaanites, don't be like the Egyptians, be like me. And here are some specific practices that you are going to be tempted to adopt as your own when you go into the promised land. Don't do it. And so let's start at verse 6. We're going to read verse 6. You are not to come near any close relative for sexual intercourse. I am the Lord. The phrase for sexual intercourse there is literally to uncover someone's nakedness and actually covers sexual activity both in and outside of marriage. And so what we're going to have here is kind of a who you can marry if you are a guy in, in, and you're an Israelite at this time, right? It's just from his point of view. What arenas or, or what, where can I find a spouse? It's kind of the question that's being answered. And so you get from, from his point of view, those whom he may not marry or engage in sexual intercourse. And close relatives are out. And so the first prohibition in the chapter is against incestuous relationships. Instead of reading all of those to you, 
I'm going to just list them out. So a man may not marry or have sex with his mother, his aunt, his stepmother, his aunt by marriage, sister or half-sister, stepsister, stepdaughter, sister-in-law, daughter-in-law, granddaughter, step-granddaughter, and daughter. The last one is assumed because this relationship is closer than all the others that are mentioned. Off-limits. This is abhorrent in the eyes of the Lord. It damages family. It is against God's design for marriage and sexuality. We get down to verse 18, and there is some uh, discussion about which category this kind of uh, this prohibition belongs to, whether it belongs to um, the prohibition against incestuous relationships or if it's a prohibition against polygamy or bigamy. Let me read it to you. You are not to marry a woman as a rival to her sister and have sexual intercourse with her during her sister's lifetime. And so, some people just say, this says, don't marry a woman's sister when her sister is living. Right? That, that, that makes sense. But others will say, actually, what's going on here is the word sister is being used as a more common expression. And from the construction of the Hebrew, which could also be rendered, um, a man is not to marry a woman as well as another woman, we should view this as a prohibition against having multiple wives. And there's, there's evidence on, on both sides. I don't have time to outline it all to you. Uh, but if you want to put it in that first kind of category, it's hard to decide between the two. If you want to put it under, well, this is just another incestuous relationship, you know, prohibition number one, that's fine. Uh, I actually am compelled to just lean ever so slightly in, in the direction of this is a prohibition on polygamy or bigamy. And, and the reason it's a controversy is like, the Bible's laws in the Old Testament don't always hold up the ethical ideal, right? Sometimes they kind of permit like the minimum requirement for civility as one exists and lives within a theocracy. At any rate, I think this is a second prohibition in verse 18. And so there's two pro prohibitions so far. One is against incestuous relationships. The second is against having multiple wives or taking a wife that is a rival to the wife you have. You shouldn't take a second wife. So prohibition number one, incestuous relationships. Prohibition number two, bigamy or polygamy. And prohibition number three shows up in verse 19. You're not to approach a woman during her menstrual impurity to have sexual intercourse with her. So, Prohibition number three is you are not to deliberately have sex when a woman is on her menstrual cycle. And if you have been with us, you remember back from the uh, bodily fluids sermon in chapter 15 that there's actually provision made uh, for a couple that would be copulating and then discover uh, that a woman is on her menstrual cycle because both would be made unclean, it would be really bad, but they can follow procedures and become ritually pure. This prohibition is related to ritual impurity within Israel, right? The idea is that her uncleanness would spread to her husband, and then both of them would be in danger of spreading that uncleanness throughout the camp, which ultimately endangers everyone. Uncleanness has to be purified, has to be cleansed. And this, this is to be distinguished from that situation in chapter 15, because what the couple is doing is they're recognizing, hey, she is on her cycle. God has told us not to 
engage in sexual activity while she is menstruating because this makes us both unclean and it spreads this uncleanness throughout the camp. And what's happening in verse 19 is they're deliberately saying, we don't care what God has said. And they're endangering everyone by their behavior. Now, this is the only kind of law in this particular chapter uh, that I think we can point to and say, I don't know that this is specifically, I don't think this is still in effect because it's tied directly to uh, the laws of ritual purity and impurity. And Jesus comes and he, he fulfills all of those, right? The, Samaria, the ceremonial system no longer exists. While the rest of these laws that are listed uh, have a moral aspect to them, and they exist in perpetuity. All that to say, this law is most likely prohibited because the camp is not to be made unclean. And so it's prohibition number three, I said, deliberately having sex during a woman's menstrual cycle. That brings us to prohibition number four, verse 20. You are not to have sexual intercourse with your neighbor's wife, defiling yourself with her. This does not mean that you can have sex with a wife of a non-neighbor who lives further away, right? Or an unmarried woman. Right? This is a general prohibition. Adultery, off limits, right? We know, uh, we did the Ten Commandments, right? We, all the, the, the hand motions, remember? The marriage is between two people, right? And they walk the aisle, it's the seventh. You guys don't remember, it's okay. I tried. Seventh, it's the seventh commandment. No, adultery is off limits. It's outside of God's design. That brings us to prohibition number five. You are not to sacrifice, verse 21, you're not to sacrifice any of your children in the fire to Moloch. Do not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. To profane the name of God is to disrespect his entire person. The name uh, represented his, his essence, who he was. This is a big deal to profane the name of the Lord your God. And Moloch was a pagan deity, and it's pretty clear from the text, that, that people used to sacrifice their children to by way of burning them and hoping to get something in return. Israel's warned against this kind of child sacrifice, and yet they fall into it. You, you can read about Manasseh in Second Chronicles or First Chronicles. One of the Chronicles, uh, Manasseh actually sacrifices his children to Molech. And, and unless we get too high on our cultural, well, we would never, horses. We need to recognize that this practice still takes place today. Moloch just goes by the name of my dreams, my choice, and he's sacrificed to, not by way of fire, but through the instruments and the hands of an abortionist. As children are torn apart, limb from limb in the womb. We're not that different from the ancients. They used to sacrifice to Moloch to try to get something for themselves. They would use their children to bring about a desired result in their own lives. And likewise, in contemporary culture, Women are encouraged to view children as a curse and the way that they can bring blessing into their lives is by sacrificing them. 
God says, this is bad for the society. This is bad for the, the family. This dishonors me. Child sacrifice is prohibited. Prohibition number six, homosexuality. Verse 22. You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable or an abomination. Sex is not intended to occur outside of marriage. Sex is not intended to occur between one man and another man and by implication between one woman and another woman. Homosexuality cuts against the moral fiber of God's creation. It makes a mockery of it. This is a been a kind of a hot button issue in our culture. But the teaching of Scripture and Judaism and Jesus and the New Testament is, is uniform. This kind of sexual behavior is sin. And it's sin because it goes against what God has said and against what God has revealed in nature. It subverts his design. Now, many in our culture struggle with this particular sin, struggle with same-sex attraction. Many in the church struggle with same-sex attraction. Uh, perhaps some in this room have struggled with same-sex attraction. And if that's you, I, I want to encourage you. Well, you are right there with the rest of us in terms of being a sexual sinner. No one is perfect in this regard. All of us have had twisted sexual desires, which Jesus condemns. He says, the one who looks at a woman lustfully sins, commits adultery in his heart. All of us have been sexual sinners. And so if you are struggling with homosexuality or, or same-sex attraction, let me encourage you to repent of that sin and to fight against it. Just as the rest of us are called to fight against our sins. Don't identify yourself by your sin, but with Christ. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Just like the rest of us who have struggled with sexual sin. I think sometimes I hear people will say phrases that are oxymoronic, like, well, I'm a, I'm a gay Christian. And I think sometimes the intent is good. They want to try to reach into the homosexual community and let them know, my struggle is your struggle. But it doesn't make any sense to me to identify oneself with one's sin while employing the name of Christ. Right? That would be like uh, somebody um, who had sex prior to being married walking around, hey, I am a fornicating Christian. Right? Or I am a, I'm a greedy Christian. I, I am a lying Christian. This is a bad idea. Your sexuality is not your identity. Your sin is not your identity. You're more than that. God made you to be more than that. And if you'll turn from that sin, if you'll lay it down, and come to Christ in faith, He will make you who you were meant to be. Make you part of His family. Church, it is so important 
that we resolve to be faithful to Scripture on this matter, especially as cultural winds blow hard against us. It is unloving to call what is evil good. We must be faithful. And we must be kind. I think sometimes we, you know, the the posture towards those who are living same-sex lifestyles is to to say, you know, like, turn or burn, or I'm not even going to talk to that person. And and friend, that's sin. Now, the the posture should be, I want to be friends with those people. The posture should be, I need to find a way to have them over to my house for dinner and to befriend them and to, to love them, to have a legitimate relationship with them. I want to invite them to church. They need Jesus just like everybody else. Their sin is just manifesting in a different way. It's our responsibility as fellow sinners to show them where salvation and life really can be found. Not in one's preferential sin or pet sin, but in Christ alone. Prohibition number seven, verse 23. You are not to have sexual intercourse with any animal defiling yourself with it. A woman is not to present herself to an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. This is called bestiality. It's prohibition number seven. God says uh, human beings are not to mate with animals. And again, all of these things are listed because they were going on in Canaan and in Egypt. There is nothing new under the sun, okay? Our culture did not invent sexual deviation. It's been around a long time. And bestiality was going on. I have no doubts that it goes on in our culture. I have no doubts that some people struggle with it. but it is prohibited and dishonoring to God. It too cuts against his designs within creation. If I were going to add to this list in Leviticus, I think we could add a number of things. But certainly at the top of that list, I would add pornography. Pornography is an abomination. It takes sex from where it belongs between a husband and a wife in marriage and it, it puts it out there as a consumer product. These things are to be rejected. And they're not just, I, don't, I just don't want to hear you say, God saying, uh, thou shall not, thou shall not, or you shall not, which he does in this chapter. But you have to recognize all of these thou shall nots and you shall nots are against the backdrop of creation. Right? God invented sex. It is a good gift. It needs to be used rightly. It's like, just like money is a good gift. You have to use it rightly. This is all against the backdrop of, of Genesis when God creates the man and the woman. Right? God creates Adam. God creates the world and it's good. God creates Adam and something is, is off. Causes Adam to fall asleep, performs surgery, 
and he takes the rib that he excises from Adam and he builds a woman. And Adam, he wakes up and, and he sings that song. This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He's not much of a lyricist, but I'm sure it was much more charming. It was the first song you ever heard. And then we read in Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Marriage is a miracle in which God unites a husband and a wife into one. And that spiritual reality is portrayed in physical union. If the act of sex, I'm sorry, in the act of sex between the two persons, they become one in the way they were most different. God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, and they would be one flesh. It's a good thing. He's, he created sex. He's not embarrassed about it. He's not bashful about it. But he is saying, the, these are the parameters. This is the arena inside of which sexual activity is to be enjoyed. Marriage. Period. <laughs> any, any sexual exploits outside of that are dishonoring to me. They're dishonoring to the institution. I mean, at the end of the day, sex and marriage are after all, portraits of the gospel. They're meant to point us to Christ. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. That marriage is a, a symbol that points us to a deeper reality of the relationship between Christ and the church. One in which he says, you are mine exclusively and I am yours exclusively. Man, when we take sex outside of marriage, we tear apart that picture and we dishonor God. God's people are called to live distinct lives in this arena. He's, he's set his people apart as his own. We are not to live like the people around us, like the nations around us. We are to live like the people of God. We are to be distinct from the world. You can see in Leviticus uh, chapter 20, verse 26, God says, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be mine. God deserves and demands exclusive devotion. And that devotion is expressed in obedience to his commands. Obedience to God's commands are what marks off the people of God from the rest of the world. Helps us to display his glory and reflect his character. But what happens? What happens if the people of God reject the word of God? Look with me at verse 24 of chapter 18. Do not defile yourselves by any of these practices, for the nations I am driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things. The land has become defiled. 
so I am punishing it for its iniquity. And the land will vomit out its inhabitants. But you are to keep my statutes and ordinances. You must commit any of these detestable acts, not the native or the alien who resides among you. For the people who were in the land prior to you have committed all these detestable acts, and the land has become defiled. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it has vomited out the nations that were before you. Any person who does, not, does any of these detestable practices is to be cut off from his people. You must keep my instruction to not do any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you, so that you do not defile yourselves by them. Here's the phrase again, the reasoning. I am the Lord your God. And so he's saying, if you think you can roll up into Canaan and live like the Egyptians and live like the Canaanites and live like the pagan nations around you, if you think you can call yourself by my name and live however the hell you want, well, you're going to meet the same end. Judgment will come on you just like it came on them. You kind of love the, the imagery here. The land is personified. It's like the sins of the people make it sick. It was made for glory. It was made to, to exist under the kingship of God. But the people's sins, they, they just turn the stomach of the land. And eventually it just can't take it. So it's going to vomit them out. So I love that imagery. And the corporate consequences of a nation characterized by sin, if the whole people of God become characterized by sin, the consequence is Rejection from the land. And if you turn over to chapter 20, we have the consequences for individuals. What happens when individuals sin against God in this way? And, and you can see there are three penalties in this chapter. They are childlessness, being cut off, which can refer to exile or premature death, and death. And so um, in the case of a man sleeping with his aunt or marrying his brother's wife, to, their curse is that they will remain childless, which is a huge deal in Israel. For a couple that's copulating during menstruation deliberately, and for the man who marries his sister, they are to be cut off. Context in the chapter makes us think that it's exile in this particular case. And then for all the remaining sins that we've talked about this morning, death is the penalty. So that would include all the incestuous acts that I've not yet mentioned, adultery, homosexuality, and bestiality. And you can see there in verses 9 through 16, the phrase over and over again, must be put to death. Both of them must be put to death, must be put to death, must be put to death, must be burned, must be put to death, must be put to death. The wages of sin is death. And the penalty for these particular sins is death. We see in the first few verses of the chapter, starting at verse 1, the penalty for child sacrifice. The Lord spoke to Moses, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or alien residing in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch must be put to death. The people of the country are to stone him. I will turn against that man and cut him off from his people because he gave his offspring to Moloch. 
defiling my sanctuary and profaning my holy name. But if the people of the country look the other way when the man gives any of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will turn against that man and his family and cut off from their people both him and all who follow him in prostituting themselves with Moloch. Whoever turns to mediums or spiritists and prostitutes himself with them, I will turn against that person and cut him off from his people. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sets you apart. I want to point out three things rather quickly on uh, the first eight verses here, what they show us about God. First is that God hates sin. God's wrath is his right response to evil. Sin is serious. It is punishable rightly by death and by God's wrath in hell throughout eternity. Sin is serious. God hates sin. Second thing, God expects his people to address sin. Did you see that at the beginning of of chapter 20? He says that if you catch this guy sinning in this way, and it's throughout the rest of the chapter, if they're sinning in this way, you need to carry out these penalties. And in the case of child sacrifice, it's by stoning. So you, you, if you know someone is, is committing child sacrifice, you, you need to stone them to death. And the people's involvement in this activity demonstrates that they are with God rather than with the sinner. Now, We no longer live in a theocracy. But the church is still called to address sin. We we don't, again, we don't give anybody the death penalty or throw stones. But we have been given a pattern to address sin in church discipline. That's why Jesus gives it to us in Matthew 18. It's why it's there in 1 Corinthians 5. Which, it's funny, if you you pay attention in 1 Corinthians 5, the offense that uh, the brother is committing that brought about church discipline is incest, one of the things that are prohibited in this chapter. God expects his people to address sin and to confront it. And he's given us a pattern to follow to do it. We want to warn those brothers or sisters who are caught in sin and say, brother, lay down your sin and return to Christ. His arms are wide open to you. His pockets are deep. He, he is rich in mercy. He's a big spender. He can forgive you again. You need to turn from that sin and be reconciled to God because you are in great danger. And if you do not turn, if you continue to embrace your sin instead of God, you are proving that you do not know God and do not love God. And it's our responsibility to tell you that, to tell you that you are in danger. You will notice, verses 4 and 5, God says, If the people of the country look the other way when that man gives any of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, if they don't address his sin, then I will turn against that man and his family and cut off from their people, both him and all who follow follow him, prostituting themselves with Molech. God says, if you don't address this sin... I'm going to take out the guy and his whole family. You know, why? What does family do? 
Well, the idea here is that the family would be the people who are watching this act and refusing to carry out the Lord's discipline. The, the family would be the ones around the gentleman who see his sin and are saying, yeah, but I really love my dad. I really love my brother. I don't want to address this sin. I don't want to stone him. And God says, you better address that sin because you belong to me. And that person who's caught in sin is dishonoring me. You must address the sin. Because if you don't, I will. And everybody who kept quiet will be counted as an accomplice. To not address sin in the way that the Bible prescribes is sin in and of itself. And so the church that that refuses to correct sin by way of church discipline, lovingly, longing to see a sinner restored, the, the church that refuses to remove from its number the person who would look at the command of God and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live however I want. The church that refuses to address sin is in sin itself. The redeemed are to reflect their Redeemer. The church is to be a display of God's glory. We are to be a holy people. We're to be a canvas upon which the eyes of the world can look and say, that's what God is like. I think it's really important if you're here and you're a non-Christian that you hear me. Christians are not sinless. We're not sinless. I want to be very, very clear about that. We sin every day. I I sin every day. I've sinned since I came in here this morning. But Christians repent. Christians repent. And they come to Christ and they receive that forgiveness. But we're we're not perfect people. In fact, realizing our imperfections is what Christianity, it's it's what it's got for us. It's how we've said we, we can't make ourselves right with the God that we've offended. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do it on our own. We, we need a Savior. Non-Christian, you can know Jesus too. His arms are wide open. He forgives. He will welcome you into His family. All you must do is turn from your sin and believe in Jesus. We are not perfect but we are called to strive after Christ-likeness. Right? There, there's a difference between leaping into sin like a pig into the mud and lapsing into it. Like when you stumble over a tree root when you're walking outside. Christians are those who are striving for Christ-likeness and battling against sin. Repenting of sin, receiving forgiveness. Repenting of sin, refi- receiving forgiveness. And walking out the commands of God in their lives. They're to be holy as God is holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written... Be holy because I am holy. 
We want to be a holy people and we must address sin. Church discipline is, is never popular, but it is necessary. Lest we close our eyes to sin and turn the other way and find ourselves guilty also. God does not tolerate sin among his people. It is to be repented of. The third thing I want you to see is that no one gets away with sin. So Numbers 32.23 says, Your sins will find you out. In Oak Ridge, Tennessee, there was a, a kind old man who lived in an ordinary ranch-style house in an, or an unextraordinary cul-de-sac in an unremarkable neighborhood. Neighbors on that quiet street could never imagine the truth about the man that would be unearthed in a most extraordinary way. See, the man was formerly a Nazi. He was 94 years old. And his complicity in the Holocaust and his involvement as a collaborator in the killing regime of the Third Reich only came to light when through the marvel of modern technology, fragments of his SS identity card were able to be reconstructed. I see a, a German ship had been sunk by the Allies during World War II. And then subsequently, in 1950, the ship was discovered and, and some of its contents were brought up. But the cards could not be deciphered until the year 2020 at which point Mr. Berger was identified and ordered deported. He who had volunteered to wear the Nazi uniform was living out his days peacefully at the end of a quiet cul-de-sac in Tennessee. He must have thought at 94 years old that he had gotten away with it. But in the end, his sin found him out. No one gets away with sin. Some might slip through the fingers of justice in this life. But none will avoid the righteous hand of God on the day of judgment. Friend, you might not have a history of being in the Third Reich in your past. But you do have sins. There are plenty of sins and sinners in this room. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, folks who have practiced homosexuality, thieves, greedy, Drunks, swindlers, and more. Folks who have sacrificed children. You, you name the sin and, and it is likely in this room. Certainly among our brothers and sisters across the world who call God their father. How, how can a sinful people like us who have so rebelled against God enjoy relationship with him? 
He doesn't tolerate sin. Substitution. That's what we've been studying throughout Leviticus. This sacrificial system. Substitution. Jesus Christ came into the world and he, he died on the cross. He was put to death. He was cut off. Childless. And after three days, he was raised up from the dead. Crowned with glory. And his name was given to thousands upon thousands who come to him in faith. And it's through his substitutionary work that we are able to call God Father. His death is our death. His life is our life. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and been buried with him in baptism, our call in this life is to walk in the newness of life. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Church, we must not follow the ways of the world. We must delight in the law and the word of the Lord, our God. We must express our love for God by keeping his commandments. Reject worldliness. Love Jesus. Obey God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning humbled once more by your word, by your holiness, by your grace. And we ask that you would Put the balm of forgiveness on our hearts once more as you lead us to repentance. Know what kindness it is to show to us the bones that have been broken by our sin and to set them back in place so that they might grow healthy. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be holy as you are holy. We thank you that you forgive us every time we stumble and fall. You are our good Father. We, we love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.